Hello and welcome once again to Bringing Art and Technology Together podcast. My name is Ryan Price and this is episode 3 recorded on April 29th, 2013. With me as always is my lovely and talented co-host, Miss Catherine Neal. Hello. Catherine, how was your um, TweetSpeak stuff going? You got any new articles up this week? Not so far, but I'm working on um, a number of things, and so there will be some new stuff coming out soon. Well, and you you talked, I think, last time about you're going to be teaching a class. I'm going to be teaching a couple of workshops called How to Think Like a Creative Genius. And yeah. so is that something just anybody can sign up for? Oh, yeah. You can go to uh, tweetspeak.com, and uh, there'll be the ability to sign up online right there. Or is it, is it tweetspeak poetry? It's, yes, it's tweetspeakpoetry.com. I'm sorry. And you can check the show notes at batideas.com for a specific link if we've got one. Um, we're going to have a, a guest today. We haven't had a guest in a little while, but... Her name is Nicole Pin. It's like you used to have this name. Anyway, Nicole, welcome <laughs> Getting to the married. show. Hi. <laughs> when I first met Nicole, she was not Nicole Pin. <laughs> That's true. I got married last last year and changed it. Nicole, tell us about your professional associations. Where do you work? What's your what's your like straight gig? And then we'll ask you about your your fun stuff. All right, I've got two two official gigs. Um, the first one is working with the Arts and Cultural Alliance of Central Florida, a Red Chair project, as most people would know it. Um, uh, the second is working with Symbiosis, which is an applied research company working in innovations and in tech and education and various areas. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite uh, groups of people here in town. They do some really fun stuff, including um, one time, a couple times actually at Urban Rethink, they've set up like this sort of interactive space here, and they videotaped it so they could see how people use the space. And the whole time, they also set up like a think tank of people talking about how to use this concept. Chris calls it play testing. It's basically trying out your early stage ideas on real people it's it's creating experiments i don't know how else to say that it's exactly in what a very it is. short way yeah. yeah um in in the startup world you would call it lean startup where you want to get something out there as early as possible and test your assumptions but in when you're making a museum exhibit for example the museum they kind of shun the idea of putting out something that's not finished, so you have to find a different avenue for it, and Urban Rethink was that avenue um, here at our co-working space. Yep. Both of those were great, and that was, the first one was using entirely physical objects in a space, so you walked into a space that's a, a scientist laboratory, and you basically just had to look around, read the journals, um, touch things, play with things experiment and try to figure out what the story was the scientist had disappeared so you were trying to figure out uh, what might have caused his disappearance just based on uh, items that were in the room um, in the scientist journals and notes and things like that um, the second one incorporated the virtual element so you had uh, the screen where you had the scientist telling you what was going on and then you had another a second screen that was interactive so that you could actually uh, experiment yourself 
Yeah, it was cool, and and they used like a PlayStation camera and some other kind of stuff to to facilitate the interactions, like um, not necessarily QR codes, but two D barcodes of some sort, and um, really, really, you know, like a a cool technology demo on top of being a cool experience. And then they were also, you know, using us as test subjects. So we were the guinea pigs. All kinds of layers (laughs) of awesome going on there. Yeah, well, I mean, it was all it was all very much in keeping with you know the Einstein quote that play is the highest form of research, and they were really mm-hmm. leveraging that with us. And they're fun. It's it's a lot of fun. I think that's important. Uh, play is so much more engaging, engaging, and it's immersive in ways that other forms of entertainment aren't. So we kind of talked about a couple things we might discuss today. We actually planned something today, Catherine. We did? Well, I don't know. I sent you, <laughs> I sent you some notes about things we might talk yes, about. Yes, we, 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 we had some notes about things we might talk about, yeah. It's, it's uh, not something that I always do. It's like, it's like, let's plan to have a discussion about this. Yes, I guess it's, it's kind true. of like a meeting, but meetings... So many times I go to a meeting and the, the, the goal of the meeting is to talk the most or to speak the loudest <laughs> instead of actually like, let's get something done. Well, that's true. And we, we did say that we, one of the things we discussed was the whole this whole idea of creativity and the fact that it's sort of, creativity and innovation is such a hot topic right now, um, sort of everywhere you look become a buzzword. Yeah, it's, innovation it's, everywhere. Everybody wants innovation, but well, when you see it a in a car idea. commercial, then you know that there's something up, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. American <laughs> innovation, and then they drop a ton me. of bricks on the back of the pickup truck, and I'm like, that's not innovative. That's just something you've been doing for the last, I don't know. Right. It's it's difficult because eventually it just doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know, people use it in so many different ways that it loses any real meaning it might have. Well, and green has definitely done that for me, too, now, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, this is a green building. Okay, well, mm-hmm. what does that even mean? We want to use green methodology. So now we're going to start hearing design thinking everywhere, and it's going to be like, we applied design thinking. We just, like, painted it on, and therefore we are now hip and awesome and urban. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be like the equivalent of greenwashing everything. It's, right. Now we're going to have innovation and creativity washing everything. <laughs> It becomes hard to have a conversation about these things because everyone's speaking a different language. Everyone's heard that word innovative used in, you know, applied to so many different areas. You know, everyone has a different experience of the word and what it means and what they think it means that it's, it's hard to find common ground in having a conversation. Yeah. And, and being able to apply any kind of metrics to innovation and creativity Mm -hmm. is like, okay, how do you, it's not like you can whip out your, you know, your 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 yardstick and measure. Okay, just how creative were you? Were you, you know, <laughs> six inches creative? Were you four ounces creative? How do you even begin to? And how do you stack up the creativity of a visual artist against, say, you know, a musician or something like that? You know, so it's it's really very difficult. One thing that I I got really curious about in the last couple of days just like trying to have this discussion with people right and trying to pitch someone on the idea of having a uh, bringing art and technology together conference what would you do at an event like that 
And I said, well, the number one thing that I would want to do is create the environment for new stuff to get made. But what is, can we define new stuff? And so then I said, is, has someone created a, a language around different kinds of new stuff about creating things? It turns out there's a guy, his name is Taylors. Taylors or Taylor? I'm going with Taylor. This guy put two S's, the one. Um, Taylor's Hierarchy of Creativity. And the short version is, it looks a little bit like a Maslow pyramid with something at the bottom, something at the top. And so I'm going to read them to you real quick from bottom to top, just so everybody's on the same page. The bottom is expressive creativity, and we're going to revisit these in a second. Technical creativity, inventive creativity, innovative creativity, and then emergent creativity. And emergent is one of those ones, I know Chris likes to use this word, your boss, from semiosis, Mm -hmm. and then I don't think has, like, entered into the the discussion all that much yet, except for when you're talking about convergence, (laughs) and then we have emergent stuff, and it's like, okay, but all these overused words. I think a lot of people know creativity when they see it, but they don't know how to define it, and they don't know where it comes from. Well, and there's and there's definitely these different kinds, right? I mean, there's so expressive creativity. Like, somebody want to give an example of what what would you think of if I asked you to exemplify expressive creativity? Oh, you know, like, um, I would think of expressive creativity as like um, uh, an expressive dance or, you know, uh, somebody producing a poem or something like that. Okay, so this is, this is like basic recorded media or performed stuff. Yeah. At the, you know, like, really... I'm, I'm not having this vision of Twilight Tharp, you know, doing an expressive <laughs> dance on a, on, a, on a stage, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's cool. That's what immediately comes to my mind. Okay, so then, so if, if, if that is, I can use all the existing tools that I've got with me, then would technical creativity be, now I'm going to take a tool from a different arena and I'm going to apply it over here? I wish I could actually had read up on this, but... I'm just trying to do it off the top of my head. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, it depends on how this guy is, is defining it. Well, let's pretend that we know what he was thinking. Uh, technical creativity. Maybe technical creativity would come from, you know, I'm, well, this is me being going geek on, on you now. Um, I would think technical creativity would be like, okay, we decided to go to the moon. We don't know how we're getting there. So, you know, everything that goes into... Building it's a rocket to get there. See, like my 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 brain right now is going toward like um, pointillism, right? Until right. until the the pointillism movement started, maybe somebody had done that before in the past, and someone had gone, but it was just like a bunch of dots, right? But then once somebody kind of invented pointillism, now it becomes this this tiny microscopic area on which you can try out new techniques, right? That's why I think of technical as a technique. Technical versus okay. Now it's your turn. Computer technical. <laughs> well, in working with artists, I find that you know, some of the best artists we have in this area have these big, beautiful, amazing, messy ideas. 
um, that come from a, a purely emotional place, wouldn't it be great if this thing existed? I kind of imagine that, I guess, as the expressive creativity, because that's I see that as being sort of where creativity begins, that initial brainstorming phase. And then, you know, from there, either they do, they, they are able or they aren't able to put some kind of structure around it to, to turn into a finished product and say, here is my artistic creation. And that would probably be the, the technical step, because that's, that's usually... Phase two is, you know, okay. can they... So, so phase one is like having the idea. That's the expression part of it. But then how well can you execute on it is the technical part. Right. Okay. So then we have inventive creativity. So I might have actually been applying technical to inventive. But that's... Maybe so. Right? You're giving me a problem and I have to create a way to solve it. To solve it, yeah. I come up with new ideas. You know, here is these these are the ideas I have based on what I've experienced. You know, people kind of draw on their own life and their own experiences for their art. Um, and maybe by inventive, they say, you know, here I am familiar with all of these experiences and all of these emotions, and I know what my community looks like, and I know how to create an artistic product. How do I, how do I, take that next step to actually coming up with my own personal products? What you know, a new idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's the inventive phase. That, that could be. So, and, and if you think about this from a pyramid, right, expressive makes up the majority of most creativity. And it, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but let's just say that probably 60% of most creativity is happening at that that expressive level, a little bit more at the technical level, a little bit less at the technical there. level, and then a little bit less even again at the inventive level. And the next two levels, you probably don't get very many examples of those, but when they do... They, they theoretically have the, uh, the possibility of making a bigger impact. I think there's a huge challenge in getting from that expressive phase to that technical phase. Right. Um, and artists, I think a lot of artists have trouble in structuring those ideas and, in, and finding, uh, you know, e- even having the support to get to the technical phase. You know, you need funding, you need a venue, you need... I mean, some people, they need a school, right? Some people yeah. just cannot learn new things by themselves. They kind of have to be shown stuff mm-hmm. until a certain point, right. you know, and, and hopefully eventually you can get to the point where you can teach yourself or you can do some of that technical and inventive creativity on your own, right? That's At some point, that's the point where you pass from the, the journeyman level to the master level is when you can make new discoveries on your own without having to have someone show you. You know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, what one of the recent TED speakers called um, cloud thinking and cloud education. And it's Sugatra Mitra, I think. Oh, yeah, name. I saw and that one. Did you yeah. see it? It was wonderful. And he was talking about a school in the cloud and talking about how he'd gone to. Um, these these places that didn't have any science education, that didn't have any access to technology, and he just he put a computer in a hole in the wall, mm-hmm. and and the, the kids were asking him, "What is this? You know, what's what is this for?" And he just said, "Oh, I don't know." And of course, he knew, but he wanted to see what they could figure out on their own. Well, and this is the same guy who did the grandmother thing too, right? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, the British, yeah. The British grandmothers. Yeah. yeah, the British grandmothers who any mentored. Yeah. He said he took it to the next step, and he actually put some information, some you know, highly technical 
information on one of these computers um, to, just, to see just how far these kids could get in figuring this out. These kids didn't even know how to use a computer when they started. Um, and he came back and found that they had been able to process so much on their own, and not only that, but they were teaching each other. So the kids who had learned first and who had figured out some of this information were, were sharing it with others, and they were all sort of piecing it together. And through this kind of cloud thinking and cloud education, they were able to, to understand everything, really, that he had put yeah. on that computer as far as they could. And he also takes it to places where people don't speak English, but all of the documentation right. is in English. <laughs> they didn't know so English not only they are they learning yeah. all this stuff, they're also <laughs> learning English at the same time. Yeah, and the kids, and actually what I remember is the, what the, the highly technical stuff that they put on the computer for these kids who had no technical scientific background, mm-hmm. they, were lear- they were basically teaching themselves um, not just genetics, they were teaching themselves um, how how DNA replicates and right. re-replicates, <laughs> at, which is highly technical, biochemical genetics. And they were understanding things that were supposed to be, you know, far, far beyond yeah, their level their of education. And it was just that you had presented them with this information. It's, you know, people just being curious, naturally curious, and trying to trying to learn together. And it's, that social aspect, I think, is really helpful. It's really amazing. Um, all good topics for future. We don't have a whole heck of a lot of time, but I do want to visit the next two. Yeah, you've said a lot, right? Innovation, right? This word that gets colored with everybody's perceptions of what it means. Mm -hmm. People might be applying innovation to all all of these levels when they really are using the wrong word. Mm Mm-hmm. So well, they use it interchangeably with creativity too, or invention. People often yeah. confuse in invention with innovation. You mm-hmm. know, invention is actually coming coming up with the idea with a new idea for a product. Innovation is the application of that idea. So yeah, it's right. actually creating that that finished new product, taking that that new idea to to well, it's like getting other people to apply it. Right? It's right. That the and it doesn't become an innovation until it. For example, changes the industry. So, this word "cloud" is another one that gets really mm-hmm. overloaded. But people always did stuff on remote computers. Right. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, it became so cheap to do these remote technical services like storing files. Amazon, they store so many files and they stream so many files because they realized at some point that all the stuff they were inventing to run Amazon, which is one of the biggest websites on the planet, and can never go down and can never have problems. So they have all these fallbacks and fail-safes and all that kind of stuff. They said, we have invented something really cool. Mm -hmm. If we turn this into a service that other people can use, that will be awesome. And they did it, and now it it has become the innovation that now there are so many people that use this style of I'm going to just put up a really cheap computer. I don't care, you know, where it is or how many processors it has. Just, I need a computer for a couple of hours. Okay, do some processing on it. All right, let it go again. And this is, a a lot of companies do this, but Amazon made it so that anyone could do it, right? I think the value system changes as people begin to understand the innovation process. I think once they see how it's done and how it's successful and the many ways in which it manifests itself, that they begin to 
to learn how to create an environment that encourages it. And when we talk about innovation, like and in, and invention, a perfect example is like. You know, people think of invention as, okay, I invented something, I go get a patent. That doesn't mean it's actually valuable. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of thousands of patents that are filed for on a regular basis. Out of all of those hundreds of thousands, if you ask anyone at the U.S. Patent Office, maybe 3,000 of, 3, of those a year are going to have any value, mm -hmm. right. you know. That's, well, I so, mean, the, the percentage of those things that are actually taken to a finished product, I mean, there's the percentage yeah. of those ideas has got to be, I don't know what it is, but I don't yeah. imagine it's very large. Yeah, it's, it's, it's minuscule. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 3,000 actually have some sort of value mm -hmm. monetarily. Right. So, you know, those are the, in, the innovative, the potential innovators, whereas the 100,000 that were filed for and maybe were built... You know, maybe they were prototyped. Yeah. They I just kind of go and sit on a shelf somewhere, or, you know, the, doc the documents sit in a cubby somewhere, and that's it. Yeah. So, the one thing I wonder, too, is, like, for these different levels of creativity, is there a, a formula to how do you create a space, for example where we can make sure that innovative creativity is within reach, right? You can't, you can't force someone to adopt something. You can't force someone to create something awesome. But you can, you can set up all of the parameters, right? Like if you're going to, if you want to try to prove that bacteria grows in this environment really well, then you have to know how to create the environment. Right. And, you know, it's been shown that there are certain things that you can do with the individual to increase their creativity process as far as their thinking or their behaviors or whatever. But you also have to have, it's been shown that there has to be certain environmental and cultural changes that are in place to help that too. I mean, you can have somebody who's incredibly creative, but if they're working, you know, if you, if you park them in Antarctica with no environment or culture to assist them, they can have all the greatest ideas. Like, I mean, they can be Leonardo da Vinci, but it's not going to go anywhere. So you really kind of need this, this melding of the individual with the right culture in the right environment to support them, to really get sort of the, the, the flashpoint of where you get the real innovation and the real burst of creativity. I mean, you know, um, Florence during the Renaissance is a perfect example. You see all these, you know, incredible innovations and genius in art and technology happening during that period. Well, there's a reason the environment, um, the the social culture, and these people came all together at this one point in time, and it was sort of the perfect merging of all these things. Right. I think you really need an environment that supports experimentation, that supports collaboration. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so can we stop right there? Supports experimentation. 
Um, I, I'll, I'm going to give one because this one I know is very important. Hello, dog. <laughs> Was my alarm telling me it's three o'clock? It's three o'clock. <laughs> Your alarm barks. Catherine's going to have One of them for sure is is safety, right? Yeah. I need to know that if I pitch you an idea, Nicole, that you're not going to tell me, well, that idea sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you tell me that, I'm already turned off. I want to leave the room. Yeah. Whether or not it actually sucks is subjective a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But if, if I tell you my idea and then you come back with that sucks, that's not, that's not safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, other, the other definition of safe comes in when we're talking about there's so many people when I try to describe to them co-working or try to describe to them creative commons or open source, they say, mm-hmm. how do you prevent someone from stealing your idea? And I say, mm-hmm. that's not the point. Right. right. If, you, you if you have to ask me that question, don't come to my space because you don't get it. Right. Yet. I, I want you to get it, but... And I never say that to them, but... That's what you're The thinking. first thought is like, you clearly don't understand. So those are my two definitions of safe, right? Right. Safe as in supportive, safe as in secure. Right. As in, this stuff does not leave this room unless we kind of have some sort of a social contract about it. Or maybe a physical contract. We're talking about... Creative Commons. There is an actual copyright document. Everybody's, you know, agreeing to, signing on to, whatever it happens. That to is be. difficult. I think you find it a lot, probably in any community, where people are afraid to share their ideas because they're afraid someone's just going to take them. You know, how how do you protect yourself in that situation? Right. Obviously, there has to be a certain amount of trust, um, but at the same time, there are just certain things you can't prevent. You know, you're you're taking a chance, really, and. I think that's something you have to be comfortable with if you want to be really innovative. Is you, it's it's about working together. It's about taking risks. It's about always coming up with that next idea. So if somebody takes your idea, you just come up with with a better one. You should always be moving and always be changing and, and evolving yeah. and looking for ways to improve. Yeah, I mean, if you get a really you know important surgery on your spleen, you know. There's a small percentage of a chance that, okay, you might die or some other bad thing might happen to you, but the alternative is not very much better. Right. So if you ask me, would I rather share my ideas or not, my option is to share. Yeah. Right. And also, it's being known as the person who's good at that. It's, you know, the value is not necessarily in that specific idea, but in the fact that you were the one who had it. Um, you know, being the value, the value of the person in their, their creativity Exactly. So, um, you know, I'm trying to convince a friend of mine, something we're working on, to release it as Creative Commons. And this person says, what if someone steals it? What if someone cakes it and makes $2 million out of it? I said, then you will be the person who made a $2 million thing. (laughs) And you can prove that and you can put it on a piece of paper. But what if they don't give me credit? I said, then they broke the law and you can sue them. Right. Mm -hmm. But if they gave you credit like they were supposed to... Then, then you have this proof. Over here, revenue sheet. Over here, my idea with my name on it, registered with the copyright office. Right. It's to me those two things are just they just naturally go together. Well, I mean, part of the problem is is it that people people assume that that they've got this scarcity mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I've got one brilliant idea that I've been rationed to in my entire life. You know, it's like I'm a one-trick pony. Everybody has one novel inside of them somewhere. Yeah, it's like I've got one great American novel and that's it. That's all I'm, That's all I get. 
And the truth is, is, is you know, like Nicole was saying, is, is if you can produce one, you can produce lots of others. And you have to sort of like trust that there are other, if you've got one good idea, you've got probably like 15, 20, 100,000 others in there if you really just keep working. And part of that is being interested in continuing education and always being interested in in new conversations and new ideas and working together. Well, those are two big hurdles, right? One big hurdle is how do I get from zero to one? I have never made a novel to I have made a novel. And you have things like National Novel Writing Month that are Mm -hmm. a community and a structure around writing your first novel or maybe writing your 17th novel. Right. You have all kinds there, but probably a grand number of people that start that have never written a novel before, if I have to guess. Um, And one of the cool things they do, too, is like they tell you, like, people have written two million lines of text in the last month, you know, or whatever it is. They, like, they have all these statistics. If you're sharing your book, then, then they, like compile stuff and they try to tell you like the, the, the world of novel writing is now this much bigger because of us um, so that's that zero, getting from zero to one is a really really hard one I was talking to a guy the other day he says I really want to become a filmmaker I said how many films have you made he said <laughs> right. I've watched a lot in the last year and I said that's not the same take you your know. iPhone go out film yeah. the tree on the corner of your street if you have to but just do it I mean I think that's a big part of innovation is, is not saying I can't do it. You know, this is something else. This is for someone else. I have to be a professional to do this thing. I think you learn to be a professional. You know, right. you, you develop your own ideas and your own way of doing something, especially in the creative realm. You, you find your, yourself and your style and what you want to, to be creating by yeah. just doing it. <laughs> Old John Wilson got on a drunk, fell in the barn, kicked up a chunk of charcoal, got inside the shoe, Lord bless you, honey, how the ashes flew. Yeah, Stephen uh, Pressfield, who's an author, and he also wrote uh, a really great book called The War of Art, <laughs> um, writes about the difference between an amateur and a professional in the arts. An amateur talks about doing art, mm. you know, and a professional sits down and does art. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you ask any successful writer, how did you do it? What's what's your secret? And they always say, I, I sat s- down and I wrote several hours a day. This is a job I'm doing. And, and they had all these fantastic ideas, but if they hadn't actually sat down to get them out, no one ever would have known them. They wouldn't be a famous writer. They'd just mm-hmm. be... I always wonder, like, how many great ideas in history have never been heard because they couldn't get past that invention phase to make it to innovation. Yeah. And, so, and, and the other hurdle is, how do I get from one to many, right? Right. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Like, that's, that's, the, that's at some point in there, you, you cross over from not just being an amateur. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they say, how many hours? There's like a, if somebody did a study, and there are a certain number of hours that you're, you spend on a thing to become an expert. Well, yeah. The, so, the, in Malcolm Gladwell's head, it's 10,000 hours. Right, it's, yeah. It's roughly five years full time. Right. If you work on it 40 hours a week for five years, that's close to 10,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there, I think there is some amount of, of, of credence to that. I mean, a really good example is learning to play an instrument. Mm-hmm. Go pick up a violin if you don't know how to play one yeah. and, and play me a concerto. Mm-hmm. And also there's Impossible. a question of, like, how are you defining expert? Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. what, what level is that 10,000? Is that, I mean, that's, 
obviously somebody who maybe knows everything there is to know possibly about that subject and is probably experimenting at that point. But, you know, there are plenty of stages, I'm sure. And I'm sure, sure there's I'm a, sure. Yeah, and a I mean, realm in which... <laughs> yeah, and sometimes being an expert is just knowing, like, 5% more than the group of people you're hanging out with. Right, yeah, you're an expert yeah, in that group. Yeah, it's a relative, <laughs> relative measurement, yeah. for sure. Um, I know that's that's really true of uh, a lot of things in the technology world. You know, mm-hmm. regionally speaking, I'm pretty good at this, that, and the other thing. But when I go to the big international conference, I'm dwarfed by some of these people in their brains. Right. So yeah, absolutely. It's it's you can be the smartest guy in the room, but not the smartest guy in the world. Right. Or the most experienced, or the most creative, or the person who is the you know the most fearless. Right. And think about how to say that, because it's double negative. Yeah. <laughs> the least fearful. Yes. I'd rather be the least fearful person in the room. Yeah. I think it's just knowing you're recognizing that you just can. You know, I, I started this job with the, the applied research company and and I was thinking to myself initially you know why do they want me I don't mm. you know I don't have any set experience in you know specifically in applied research I have a variety of skills that probably you know could contribute to that but I just sort of went with it and said well this is what I want to do this is what I'm passionate about there's value in that and also if I want to learn it I can so I'll just learn it and I have been ever since. I mean, it's a lot of, I think independent learning is really important and being a a lifelong learner and feeling comfortable finding the information, which is thanks to the internet, available, readily available to anyone who wants it. Okay, so since, how long have you been doing this, the applied research? That's very new, just a couple months now. It's been about two months. So was there a point in the beginning of it and I'm assuming the way you're talking, you've gotten over this point, but mm-hmm. in the beginning of it where you had to keep going back to someone else who works there and say, can you define this for me? Oh, I don't all want the time. to get this wrong. <laughs> yes, right? all the time. I think it's, you know, a big part of learning, of the learning process is knowing how to ask questions and knowing what questions to ask. And, and as you're reading and as you're researching, writing down any questions you have and being able to learn around the subject you're focusing on directly well and the thing I'm getting at I know this happens for me because I do a lot of of mentoring is there's a certain point when someone is not confident enough in their own you know knowledge of something that when something breaks or they get something wrong Mm -hmm. their first reaction is not let me go figure out how to do this but Mm -hmm. I have an expert source over here I'm just going to wait until I can hear from the expert Mm -hmm. and then they for me, it was, you know, we're, it's a home improvement project, but it has to do with a sewing machine. And my mom has, you know, decades of working with the sewing machine where I have a couple of hours here and there. So my sewing machine's not doing what I expect it to. Instead of even, even going to Google, which I, I would do for any other subject, <laughs> because I know that I can ask my mom that question. I wait until I saw her, which took weeks. And when she was sitting there, I said, this is broken, mom. What, what do I do? And she says oh, well, it's this. Turn this piece around and you did it. And I'm like, right. oh, that was really a, a newbie mistake. But I'm, I know that this happens to people all the time, that they hit some really small hurdle, and instead of trying to solve it themselves, they say, 
I'm going to go ask expert person who I happen to have a resource to. Which is, I think, why people rely so heavily on teachers as the gatekeepers of information, Mm -hmm. uh, when really it's so much better to learn how to teach ourselves. Um, I think you'll always hit those roadblocks where you just don't know, um, and you need, or maybe you need to know from a certain perspective. Um, but even, I mean, even if you were to go and look up that information, maybe there's another way to fix it that yeah. your mom didn't know about. So maybe now you ask your mom afterward, now you know two ways to fix it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, you start, you're on your way to becoming an expert in sewing machine maintenance. Yeah. So it's, I think it's, it's partly being able to, to look up that initial information and get as far as you can on your own. If you get stuck, you know, maybe you, maybe you call a sewing machine shop and ask them, you know, because there are infinite resources, I think, available, um, and so many sources of information, and it's just being able, not being afraid to go out and find them, you know, because I think most people are happy to answer a question. They like being able to share what we, what they know. I think that's, that's something inherent in our, our creative selves, that we, we like being able to share those things. Give the booze and chop sauce out our lemon extract and old but water horse that's bitter in the doctor's tonic. The good book said a little good for the stomach. When I was a manager in a large consulting firm, I used to have lots of um, fairly young people straight out of college working for me, and I instituted a rule that they weren't allowed to bring me a problem unless they were also going to bring me a solution. I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care if it was a stupid solution or a bad solution. But at least they had tried. But at least they had thought of something that might work to solve the problem because otherwise they would do the thing where it was like, it's broken, how do I fix it? Yeah. Because I was the one with the most experience. And when you've got like basically, you know, uh, an entire herd of newly graduated people who have no experience and you're the one person that has a lot of experience, (laughs) they would all show up in mass in my office and it's like, no, we can't have this happening every 15 minutes. (laughs) So it was like, okay, you guys, you know, if something breaks, come up with like a solution or two and then come to me with the problem if you can't figure it out and a couple of solutions and then we'll sit down and talk about what solution might work, or if it doesn't isn't a complete fix, then we'll figure out what else has to happen to make it work. You know, I think... Because people are afraid, I mean, especially people who are brought up in traditional schooling systems, mm-hmm. they, they want the right answer. Right, and they think there's only one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they and, think there's only one. And that's, I think one of the problems is that you... Eventually, no matter what industry you're working in, hopefully, if, if you're a person who's always looking forward and always trying to, to be creative and be innovative, you're going to reach a point where nobody knows the answer to your question. <laughs> While I'm sure the ending of the show was highly insightful and awesome, I seem to have lost the last few minutes of the show, so I will say, please go and check out the show notes at batideas.com b-a-t-t ideas.com leave some comments there and you can check out what we might be talking about on the next show if you look under delicious under the tag bat ideas and look forward to a possible conference around these same subjects sometime in the near future I have been your host Ryan Price thanks so much to Catherine Neal and to our guest Nicole Pinn for 
being a guinea pig and, and helping us out developing some ideas around this show. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>